2 Kings 13, beginning in verse 14. 2 Kings 13, 14. And when Elisha became sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, the son of Israel, came down to him and wept over him and said, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. And he put his hand on it. Then Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the window toward the east. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The Lord's arrow of victory, even the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall defeat the Syrians at Aphek until you have destroyed them. Then he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground. And he struck it three times and stopped. So the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria until you would have destroyed it. But now you shall strike Syria only three times. And Elisha died, and they buried him. Now the bands of the Moabites would invade the land in the spring of the year, and as they were burying a man, behold, they saw a marauding band, and they cast the man into the grave of Elisha. And when the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. Now Hazael, king of Syria, had oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them and turned to them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them or cast them from his presence until now. When Hazael, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, took again from the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities which had taken in war from the hand of Jehoaz, his father. Three times Joash defeated him. And recovered the cities of Israel. I'll pray. God, um, we just look to you again. You know how much we need you. We are but sheep, Lord, and we are lost without you. You are the good shepherd, and your promise is to lead us and to always direct us into what is true and good and honoring to you. We thank you, God, for your faithfulness to us. And we look to you, God, to minister to us as you know we need through your word. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I'm actually going to be looking at, at three passages this morning. Um, the end of the life of Elisha, which we just read. And then in chapter 14, the reign of King Amaziah of Israel, one of the eight good kings. And then in chapter 15, the reign of Azariah, also known as Uzziah, another of the eight good kings of Israel. The common thread, the common denominator between these three, Elisha, Amaziah, and Uzziah, would have to be um, lessons on pride and humility. I've quoted before um, Andrew Murray, who wrote in his book, um, Humility, pride is the root of all vice, and humility is the root of all virtue. It is pride that keeps people from receiving the free gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. It is humility that is the one prerequisite to receiving that gift. We come to Jesus in humility and we live the rest of our lives discovering how much pride is in us and how much we need a Savior. Right? It's true that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Amen. 
But Jesus says that unless you are converted and become like one of these little ones, you shall not even enter the kingdom of heaven. The first of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we will not even believe in Jesus unless we humble ourselves. And then we spend the rest of our lives discovering just how much pride is in us. I heard a man um, recently who said to a friend of his, your kids have really turned out well. I am surprised. (laughs) And he wasn't trying to be funny. He didn't even recognize, he didn't even recognize the pride and arrogance of what he just said. And I heard that and I thought, he doesn't even recognize his pride. And I'm taking pride because I recognize my pride. (laughs) Isn't that how perverse this pride is in us? We can take pride in spotting our own pride when others don't spot their pride. Amazing. It's not anything we're ever going to get over. It is the... It is the essence, the chief characteristic of that sin nature that is in us. When we look at the life of Elisha, we don't see a proud man. But with the next two, lots of pride. But Elisha is on his deathbed, and it says that he is about to die of the sickness that he has, when Elisha became sick with the illness of which he was to die. Elisha performed twice as many miracles as Elijah. Elijah did not die of sickness. He just got scooped up to heaven. Certainly, you would think that if God wants all people healed, a man like Elisha would have been healed. But he was not. He died of sickness. A man had to perform more miracles than, I think, any person in the Bible other than Jesus. And yet he died of illness. But before he dies, this king, king of Israel, so he's not a good man, very bad man, he comes to pay his respects to Elisha. He weeps over him even. So he's got some kind of emotional connection with Elisha, which says something about Elisha. This is not a good man. And yet, there's been enough interaction, we don't know what it is, but, that, but this man loves Elisha and does not want to see him die. And he says, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, which is what Elisha said when Elijah was taken up into heaven. And so this has apparently become a saying that you say to people when you know they're about to enter into glory. The chariots of Israel and its horsemen are coming. We might say, you're about to meet your maker. Maybe we wouldn't. But this is what, this is a saying back at this time was now it's become the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha is moved by God to give this bad man, this, this king, Joash, one final prophetic word. And he uses symbolism, but it's very clear that the king understood what he was saying. And he says, take an arrow, open the window, shoot the arrow toward the east. Well, that's Syria. And in case you don't understand what I've just said to you, what I've just said, pointed out to you by illustration, this is the arrow of war. And you are going to attack Syria. Okay? He just interpreted his own illustration. 
And then he says, take the rest of the arrows that you have and start beating the floor. And so one, two, three stops. And Elisha's final act is to chew out the guy because he didn't hit the floor five or six times. And it says the man of God was angry with him. You should have struck the floor five or six times. Well, why is he so angry? Because he sees the unbelief. This is where we have to look at all of Scripture, not forget what's happened in the past. And in the past, and this King Joash would have known it, Ahab, when he was king, fought and won against Syria three times. This is back in 1 Kings. I kind of skipped over those battles. And so now it comes back. So here you have King Ahab fought Syria three times, wins three times, but does not destroy Syria. This king, Joash, knew that history. So he has enough faith to believe God for what God has already done, but not faith to believe for more than what's happened in the past. And so Elisha sees it and rebukes it and goes, the reason you should have beat the floor more, more than three, or three times, five or six, is because you know Syria's not going to be defeated with just three battles. It's going to take more than that. But you're unwilling to believe God for that. And so it's his unbelief that he's rebuking, that he's so angry about. And then he dies. And they're burying some other guy. And here come the marauding bands of the, um, who's it say, of, of the Moabites. And they don't have time to finish the burial. So they just throw him into Elisha's tomb. He touches the bones of Elisha comes back to life. And we go, look at that. Elisha performed another miracle after he died. No. The lesson is, dead people don't perform miracles. And neither do living people. So this was kind of the final thing to tell us, don't put Elisha on a pedestal. Elisha never performed a miracle. God performed miracles through Elisha. It was never Elisha's power. Dead men don't perform miracles. It was never Elisha's power. It was always God's power. So he's a good man, a great man, but he was just a man. And all the miracles that happened through Elisha were, were God's doing, not this man's. So that's very important here and leading into the next two men. But just to recap a little bit here and make a couple applications, it strikes me that Elisha, a very good man, one of the most godly men who had ever walked the earth, is not uncomfortable with having a relationship with this ungodly king and to have some influence in his life, whatever that would be. Now, this man doesn't come to faith. He, 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 um, he loves Elisha, respects Elisha, but he does not fear God. And he does not humble himself to come to faith. I wonder if one of the applications here would be to take less, a lesson here from Elisha. We are not going to ever have perfect political leaders. And sadly, we all know if you voted more than one election, you know, every time we vote, it is a choice between the lesser of two evils. I can remember when my first presidential election 
was when Jimmy Carter was on the ticket. And I can remember standing in the voting line at 18 years old, and there were probably 20 or 30 people waiting to, in line to get in. It might have been more than that. It was quite a few people, I recall. And people were talking and telling who they were going to vote for. And because I grew up in Corpus Christi, everybody was pretty much either Southern Baptist or Catholic. And Jimmy Carter had come out publicly and said that he was a born-again Christian. And everybody was talking about that and saying, I'm voting for the Christian. He said he's born again. And even at 18, I'm going, but what about his policies? You know, I'm not, I don't, maybe, maybe he is indeed a better man than the other candidate. But what about his policies? Well, we all know how that turned out. But it was a lot of Christians who put him in office because they voted for him being a better man rather than for the policies that he would stand for. Now it seems like we're kind of in the other side. And there's a lot of folks that would not vote because he's not a good man. This Joash was not a good man. God puts some pretty raunchy people in office sometimes. And typically, sadly, it's often a choice of lesser of evils. But when we know pretty well what a person's policies are going to be, it seems to me... That's the way to vote. Maybe I'm wrong. We go to Amaziah, and then Uzziah, and then I'm going to bring it together with some more applications. Amaziah, it says in chapter 14, says that he was 25 years old when he became king, and he, verse 3, that he did right in the sight of David. So this is one of the good kings. But in the end, He's going to be assassinated. Because, and it wasn't because he was good toward the end, but because he starts to turn away from the Lord. First thing that he did after he became king is that he says in verse 6, that he killed all the men who put his father to death. Because his dad was also a good king who was assassinated. And then after he did that, verse 7, he fought against the Edomites and he had victory. Well, now he's getting a little bit too big for his britches. And he goes, hey, I just defeated the Edomites. Uh, why not go against Israel? So king of Judah decides he's going to fight king of Israel. Verse 8. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoash, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, come, let us face each other. And Jehoash, king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, the thorn bush which was in Lebanon sent to the cedar which was in Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son in marriage. But they passed by a wild beast that was in Lebanon and trampled the thorn bush. You have indeed defeated Edom, and your heart has become proud. Enjoy your glory and stay home. For why should you provoke trouble so that you, even you, should fall in Judah with you? Amaziah would not listen. So Jehoash, king of Israel, went up. And he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced each other. Verse 12, And Judah was defeated by Israel, and they fled each to his tent. And Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah. And then it says that 
he starts tearing down the wall of Jerusalem. 400 cubits of wall he tore down. Verse 14, he took all the gold and silver and all the utensils which were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house, the hostages also, and he returned to Samaria. And sometime later he released Amaziah. Verse 17, and Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Jehoash, king of Jehoash, king of Israel. And then after that, they conspired against him in verse 19, and they killed him. Good king, a just king, only killed the people that deserved to die. Victorious king, but then a proud king. And he provokes and attacks out of pride. And he won't listen to reason. And then he becomes defeated and disrespected. Jerusalem is plundered. And they assassinate him. And then we come to chapter 15. And it says, In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, called Uzziah in Second Chronicles, son of Amaziah, king of Judah, became king. He was only 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. It says in verse 3, He did right in the sight of the Lord. But then in verse 5, the Lord struck the king so that he was a leper to the day of his death. Wonder why? Well, that's what 2 Chronicles 26 explains. 2 Chronicles 26 says that Uzziah was greatly favored and blessed by God, exceptionally so, like David and Solomon. So this is maybe, in fact, Uzziah, the best king Israel's had since the days of David and Solomon. He warred successfully against the Philistines. No king has done that. Also against the Arabians. He prospered militarily. He prospered financially. His fame was spreading down into Egypt and even beyond. 2 Chronicles 26 says he was marvelously helped until he was strong. And then it says, but when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. And the priests were saying, King, don't do this. And he goes, Why not? God has prospered me. I'm reading into what his actions. I am blessed. Obviously, this is not a problem. And the kings and the priest said, you must get out. And while they were talking to the king, leprosy broke out on the man's forehead, and they grabbed the king, and they pulled him out of the temple, and he was a leper till the day of his death. Now, one historian said, history is nothing more than a chronicle of all the pride and, and sin and corruption of men's lives. Study history, and that's what you're studying. A lot of truth to that. You know, we could go on forever and ever on lessons on pride and humility. I have a friend that he was going to teach a short course. I've made mention of this. He thought it would be two or three Sundays that he would teach on humility. And as he got into it and studied, it ended up being like a 30 or 40 week study on humility. Because the Bible just has so much to say about pride and humility. So in looking at Elisha, Amaziah, Uzziah, 
here's some lessons. Number one, from Elisha, recall, dead man comes to life because he touches the bones of Elisha. Nothing depends on us. Everything depends upon God. None of us are indispensable. God is the one necessary person. We must keep this in mind. I've been here for over 30 years preaching. Been at His Hill for over 35 years. And sometimes I wonder, well, who's the next preacher going to be? I don't know. Who's the next director going to be? This I know. I am not indispensable. I'm not indispensable to this church. I'm not indispensable to His Hill. I am indispensable to nothing. None of us are. God is the one and only necessary person. Number two, we can take credit for nothing that is good. To God alone belongs all glory. God alone. We can take credit for nothing that is good. All glory belongs to God. I've quoted Russell Kelfer on this before. It's kind of a loose paraphrase of what something he said. But when God uses us, it is because he can't find anyone less qualified. <laughs> I wonder if he had Nebuchadnezzar's words in mind when he made that statement. In, in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar says, actually this was Daniel speaking to Nebuchadnezzar first. And he says, the most high... Daniel says, is ruler over the realm of mankind. And he bestows it on whom he wishes, and get this, and sets over it the lowliest of men. And then Nebuchadnezzar is told, seven years will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And then... From Nebuchadnezzar, I raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. Boy, that'll preach. You know any insane people today? Maybe they need to raise their eyes to heaven, and their reason will return to them. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven. For all His works are true. And his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Amen. Fourth lesson on pride. And we know this is true. Pride is insanity. Jeff said in the Sunday school class, sin is insanity. One and the same. There is simply no place for pride. It occurs to me that worms have nothing to glory in. And we are but worms apart from God. Made in His image, I understand. 
but incapable of any good thing apart from God's grace. When we look at the life of Amaziah and how proud he became because of a victory that he won, but he wasn't content. And we see that proud people are never content. Discontent is actually an expression of pride. I refuse to be happy. I refuse to be content. Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content in all circumstances. Happiness is a choice. I know one author wrote a book, and she said in the book, Writing to Women, the one thing that a husband wants is for you to be happy. And the cruelest thing you can do is to choose to never to be happy. It is pride that will not be content. Always discontented, always unhappy, always something wrong, always wanting more. It's pride. Proud people provoke conflict. Maybe this is why Paul said, keep an eye on those who cause dissension. Proud proud people provoke conflict. I don't know why. Maybe it's because they think they can get away with it. Maybe they think they are better, stronger, smarter. Maybe they think that they're untouchable. No matter the conflict, they'll always come out victorious. When we look at Uzziah and he goes into the temple, and when he had no right to because he's not a priest, we see that proud people don't think that the rules apply to them. Proud people can't stand to be excluded. If the priest gets to go in there, then why can't I? That, that would exclude them, that would marginalize them, that would say that you aren't allowed. But sometimes God draws those circles and say, no, you're not allowed. And we see this in the church, don't we? More and more. Where churches are going, why can't women be elders? Why can't homosexuals be ordained? And on and on. God's drawn his lines. And yet we go, I should be permitted. Proud people don't think the rules apply to them. Proud people interpret God's blessing as saying they are better than others, more righteous, above correction, because they don't even need to be corrected. Proud people don't fear God. Troubles me when I hear Christians say, fear of God is something unbelievers should have. And I read 2 Corinthians 7.1, and Christians are being exhorted to put aside all the filthiness and, and, un, and God, ungodliness in the fear of God. Proud people get angry, as Uzziah did, when confronted with their sin. They are unwilling to hear the truth. They are not confrontable, not teachable, not accountable. There have been a couple of times that I've had to um, confront somebody about what appeared to be um, sin in their life. Sometimes appearances are not right. And I remember one time a, it was some, a concerned um, person was telling me about one of the staff that, 
that she was very concerned about and just seeing something that, that gave her alarm. And she said, Charlie, you need to talk to him. And rather than starting the conversation with, this is what's being observed, is it true, can you explain yourself, I just said, well, it must be true. And I was so impressed with the humility of that guy, never bowed up, and basically a false accusation was being made. And he couldn't even explain to me, he was not able without, without causing hurt to someone else to explain everything, but I, as I listened to him, I knew that this was a false accusation. This is a humble, godly man, particularly in how he's responding to something that isn't true. And I've seen that repeated a couple times in my life in, in talking with people and confronting people. That even when the accusation is not true, humble person doesn't get angry. May get hurt, stings, because it's not true, but then it'll lash out. Too many times I've lashed out. People ask me if I have any regrets in life, and I often say the biggest regrets I have in life are the times when I've lost my temper. It's typically nothing more than an expression of pride. This is a, a unique time that we're living in right now at Bernie Bible Church and at His Hill. Time of really great prosperity. I see this also in some of our sister schools and torchbearers. I'm thinking especially of Ravencrest and Timberline Lodge. There's never been a time in torchbearers history when those three centers, the two in Colorado and His Hill, have been prosperous at the same time, turning away students. And all three of us are turning away students now. Wonderful. Summer programs, full. Not more surely. <laughs> we love students. We wish we didn't have to turn, turn any away. But it's a nice problem to have that you don't have enough beds. But it's a dangerous time. The church is full. Money's coming in, and we don't even pass the plate. Talking about building another building. Everybody gets along pretty well. That's a great blessing. But it's a dangerous time. I have here, and this is a whole page, but this was a letter that, I think it was a letter at least, that um, Russell Kelfer um, wrote and gave to Wayside Chapel many years ago when Wayside was just exploding in growth. And things were going great. Everybody was just firing on all, all cylinders. Wonderful time. So I want to just read this because I think it applies to us. I know it applies to His Hill. Um, and, but it may also apply to our own lives personally, individually, as well as corporately as a church and at His Hill. So Russell says... Now I'm going to say a word again to this church. This church has been blessed beyond comprehension. We've grown in numbers. We've grown in spirit. We've grown in ministries. And Satan is using people to say, you've got the answer. May I remind you, it's all grace. 
I'll just give a little parenthetical thought here. For many years, folks would come to Bernie Bible Church and go, that's a dead church. That's an unfriendly church. They don't know how to worship. I don't think anything's changed. <laughs> and yet now people are going, what a wonderful church. Our students go home and they go, we'll never find another church like Bernie Bible Church. We hear that all the time. And, and folks are going, what's the secret? It's just God's grace. Because sometimes there's favor and sometimes there isn't. And it's God who gives favor. It's all grace. His strength is made perfect in weakness. So God looked around and chose out of nothing to turn it into something so he would get all the glory. And I believe we stand today at the most crucial point in our spiritual pilgrimage as a people. We can begin to revel in our success and begin to tell others how we do it. We can patent the process and preempt the person. And little by little, the power will vanish. We can concentrate on what we have as though the church were a storage tank rather than humbly give ourselves away, remembering that we're no storage tanks, but, we're, but a satellite that receives God's mercy and sends the signal on. We can drink it in, lock it up, and hang on to what we have and lose it all. Or we can fall to our knees in utter humility in utter amazement that God would choose us to use the likes of us. We can become a people of prayer more than ever before, taking what God has given us and laying back at his feet in utter abandonment and total humility, asking God to reveal more of the sin in our lives, seeking ourselves, seeking ourselves as those with greater needs, seeing God with great provisions. We must be careful not to become comfortably prosperous, but rather uncomfortably burdened over the needs of the city and over the needs of the world and over the needs of each other. We can be overwhelmed with numbers or overwhelmed with the need for absolute repentance and revival if God is to continue to work. We have not arrived. We have not even begun. We have only tasted the goodness of God. And with every taste, we ought to fall on our knees and wonder in awe that the living God has chosen to live through the likes of us. We need to spend a day in prayer and thanksgiving as a people, humbling ourselves before God. You see, success breeds prayerlessness. Success breeds presumptuousness. Success breeds pride. As Christians, there is no basis for it. If someone comes to you on a hot day and pours you a cup of lemonade and it's the best lemonade you've ever had, do you praise the pitcher or the glass? No, they're just vessels. Praise goes to the one who made it. So Paul said, God has chosen to use earthen vessels, unpretentious containers, so men and women would marvel at his grace, not at the pitchers. We read, and this is from our passage, 2 Chronicles 26, so he became very famous, for the Lord helped him wonderfully until he was powerful. But at that point, he became proud and corrupt. He sinned against the Lord his God by entering the forbidden sanctuary of the temple and personally burning incense upon the altar. So God made him a leper. 
He lived out his last years in isolation and seclusion. Turn over to 2 Chronicles 32 and look at Hezekiah. He too began to prosper at the hand of God. One day he became sick and he prayed to the Lord and the Lord answered with a miracle. But verse 25 says Hezekiah didn't respond with true thanksgiving and praise for he had become proud. He took, took God's miracles for granted. He became presumptuous, another casualty of the syndrome of success. Are we better off not to be blessed? That way we're less accountable and less prone to presumption, right? Wrong. We're better off in whatever state of spiritual success God deems to place us. He knows what he's doing. All he asks of us is that the more he blesses us, the more, humble, the more we humble ourselves. The more he blesses us, the more we praise him. The more he blesses us, the more we recognize the meaning of grace. Satan's landmine is laid in place. Whenever success comes, the subtle danger is that the success becomes spiritual pride. At that moment, we have a choice. We can stand on our feet and say, look at us. Or we can fall on our face and say, look at him. What happens from then on will be decided by which we do. That's pretty good stuff. If we were to look at the lives of Amaziah and Uzziah without looking and comparing with Elisha, I think we'd miss a lot. I am so thankful for this little story that God says they just threw a man's body into a tomb, touched the bones of Elisha, and he came back to life. That says everything. It simply doesn't depend on us. God's success is because of God's activity. God prospers because God is good and full of grace and mercy. We can never take credit for the good things, for the blessings that God gives to us. Simply grace. I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for these just simple reminders from your word. You've laid out these three men one after the other, God, it just would seem so that we could just see how foolish pride and self-exaltation are. How dangerous and destructive they are. That they actually destroy everything around them, Lord. Whereas, God, you just want us to live humbly, with open hands, receiving from you and giving all honor and praise and glory to you when you bless us because we will never deserve it. Thank you, God, for how you showered your grace and blessing upon this fellowship. We thank you especially for the oneness and the peace and joy that we have with each other, for the forgiveness, for the perseverance, the long-suffering God that I see being demonstrated so regularly, God. It's a miracle of your grace. Thank you for it. I pray that we would remain, God, a forgiving people. That we would, would not hang on to the petty grievances and offenses that will inevitably arise. But that we would be quick to shake them off, Lord. And to turn to you and recognize that we too have many times 
caused grievance and given reason for offense for others. But God, you have forgiven us, and I pray that we might just grow in the grace to forgive others as we have been forgiven. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us and um, prospering us with people, with finances, Lord, and that we can even talk about another building. But these are just your gifts, God. They are not rewards. They are not because we're better, but just your mercy, Lord. And we thank you for it. I thank you, God, for just in our own lives, how you've cared for us. I know there are folks in this church that years ago just didn't know how they would make it through the week. And today, Lord, every need is being met. We thank you, God, for that. Lord Jesus, every good thing we recognize comes from above. And we are the author, the agent, the source of nothing that is good. But all things come from you. And apart from you, we can do nothing. Thank you, God, for loving us, caring for us. And I pray that we would be just sensitive and alert to your spirit, God, that when you um, convict us and just even cause us to just see the sin, the pride that is in us, that we'd be quick to humble ourselves, come to you in open confession and repentance, and thanking you for the cleansing that you give through the blood of Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.